really great sitting and listening to the sound of the wind and the rain. It's such a vehicle for understanding the nature of awareness. And I'm just sitting and there's nothing to do. <laughs> just sitting and the sound appears and it's known spontaneously and without effort. And so it really gives a very direct sense of what's meant by the innate wakefulness of mind. And it's not something we need to create or construct or develop even. It is the very nature. And then when we look into what is knowing, we see that there's nothing there, there's nothing to find. And so, begin to get even glimpses of this union of emptiness and wakefulness. And that, that is the nature of the mind, the essence of mind. During one three-month course, there was a yogi from Holland. We were working in this way together. And one day he came in for an interview and I asked him how he was experiencing the nature of the mind, the nature of awareness, and what his experience of it was. And he had such a, a refreshing answer because it wasn't from books and it was just, he was relaying his experience. And he said, his experience of the nature of mind, the nature of awareness, was honesty. Mm -hmm. And I thought, hmm, <laughs> that's really a very uh, beautiful way of expressing it. The nature of awareness, or the mind, is honesty in the sense that it reflects everything perfectly. You know, it's, uh, so another, a more traditional expression of that would be the mirror-like wisdom of the mind, you know, which we read in different texts. But I thought to frame it in terms of honesty, it was just so uh, vibrant that when we're sitting undistracted, the nature of the mind is simply to be aware of whatever is arising, without obstruction, without distortion, so that felt good, that we can actually connect with that place of honesty, you know, within ourselves. So yesterday we talked a lot about relative and absolute bodhicitta, you know, compassion and the nature, the essence of mind. Today I'd like to spend some time talking about what obscures our recognition of this. Given that it's not something we need to get, or create, or even develop, that it's already here, why is it that we're not living out of that understanding more often? So there's some powerful tendencies in the mind that obscure this recognition, this understanding. And different traditions really emphasize working in different ways. Some traditions emphasize recognizing, practicing the recognition of this empty, open awareness. Some traditions emphasize really understanding what obscures it. I think both are really helpful uh, because they really support each other. 
if we're staying just in the practice of trying to recognize the nature, you know, and this essential innate wakefulness, it's very easy to space out. You know, we're kind of sitting, we're resting in awareness, but really the mind can be lost in all kinds of thoughts and daydreams and whatever. So it's very helpful to have the precision of mind that is actually seeing what's going on, honestly, and accurately. And on the other hand, from the other side, we can get so caught up in trying to figure out what's going on, now we lose that sense of the sudden awakening of the basic nature. There's a book that I'm just starting to work on, tentatively called One Dharma. Because it comes out of my experience of practicing in different traditions that they're all feeding each other, they're all supporting one another. You know, and there's such a tendency to sectarian view, this way is right, or this way is right, instead of seeing that they're all skillful means to help us awaken, and that they actually uh, help. You know, each of these ways help each other. So today we'll talk a little bit about what obscures our recognition? You know, what are those areas or arenas in which we go from water to ice? How does the ice arise? <coughs> One of the major areas of contraction that we find in the course of a day, in the course of our lives, is in our relationship to pleasant and unpleasant sensations in the body. There are very deep tendencies, habit patterns, of liking what's pleasant and not liking what's unpleasant. <laughs> and this is not news to any of us. And yet that attachment to what's pleasant and aversion to what's unpleasant is itself an energetic contraction, and that's the becoming ice. And we can feel it if we're paying attention in our experience. What happens when we feel painful sensations? There are a lot of reactions that we can have. Often it's fear. And as we begin to experience pain, especially if it begins to get to an edge, whatever our edge may be, we can get afraid of it. Or we might feel self-pity, or we might feel worry, or we might simply hate it. <laughs> All of those reactions of mind in the face of unpleasant sensation is the freezing of the mind again. It's no longer in that place of water, of openness, of simply feeling what's there. It's no longer that place of honesty, <coughs> meaning the bare experience of the sensation. We're, we're adding to it through all of these reactions, and those reactions are what tighten us. Especially with painful feeling, it often, we often get caught in the fear that it won't change. You know, that this is how it's going to be for the rest of the hour, you know, or the rest of the day, or the rest of our lives. And so that fear itself is a contraction. With pleasant feeling, it's just the opposite. Pleasant feeling comes, and there's this immediate sense, oh, I like this. 
you know, and this feels good when the body just gets very soft and open and nice soft tingles or raptures or, you know, and sometimes it gets exquisitely pleasant. The practice can really open up those spaces of tremendous, tremendously pleasant feeling. And I've just over so, so many years watched this tendency of mine, ah, you know, now I finally have it, I'm here. You know, and the, the wanting to sustain it, the wanting it to go on. And so in that situation, it's just the opposite of the pain. Instead of the fear that it will never go away, with pleasant, with pleasant sensations, the fear that it will go away. You know, and so we get caught one way or another, we're no longer resting in that mirror-like wisdom. Now there are some implications of these tendencies. One of them being, the more attached we are to the pleasant, the more we crave for the pleasant and cling to it, the more resistance and aversion we have to unpleasant because we've set up this basic strong preference in the mind and the more we feed it on one side the stronger the aversion to the opposite uh, arises. Just one experience I had quite early on in my practice was such an incredible lesson for me in this. Uh I had been in India for a few years practicing and so I had gotten over the very initial kind of struggles and hindrances and I was really in this state of uh, pretty good concentration and my body was totally open at that time and it really felt like a body of light. And every time I sat there was no solidity, there was no... It was just this incredible light, energy. It was like there was no body there, you know, there was no solid. So I thought, hmm, I like this. And I just had this whole imagination of oh, the whole rest of my life, I'm going to just be sitting with this body of light, great. Well, at some point uh, I ran out of money and I had to come back to America. And so I came back for a few months and worked and got involved. And all the time I'm sitting, oh, I can't wait to get back to India in my body of light. Yeah. Well, by the time I got back there and I got back into intensive practice, it was no longer a body of light, it had become a body of twisted steel. <laughs> it was so not, it was completely the opposite. I spent two years struggling to get something back. I had this idea in my mind that the body of light was how it was supposed to be and somehow some terrible thing happened. And so I was trying pushing my mind through this kind of energetic knots and it was the most frustrating two years of my practice. I mean, it was terrible, completely uh, unsatisfying. It took two years to finally understand deeply that it wasn't about getting something. It was about relaxing back into the openness of what was actually there. Somehow I had to go through all of that struggle to begin to free my mind from this intense energy of preference. So I you know, share the story with you, and some of you probably have heard it before. Just 
by way of encouraging not to spend two years in that kind of struggle because it's the wrong struggle. Our practice is not about trying to make it pleasant rather than unpleasant. And as long as we do that, we stay in that place of ice, in reactivity, in contraction. Not only that, there's an even further consequence to the degree that we make pleasant experience the principle or the main reference point in our lives, to that extent we close or we cap the wellspring of compassion. Because compassion is, remember from the discussion yesterday, comes from actually letting the pain in, letting the suffering in. If we've set up our lives in a way, I just want pleasant and I want to avoid unpleasant, which is common. This, it's, not a, it's not an unusual pattern. But to the degree that we do that and not see the consequence of it, we start to live very defensively in the face of suffering or pain, whether it's our own, you know, we try to keep it out, or others. So there's something very important here in looking at our relationship to the physical sensations in our own body. And we have plenty of time, plenty of opportunities to practice. Just to become aware of all the sensations that arise, noticing whether they're pleasant or unpleasant, and really noticing the quality of our response. Are we in that open, space-like awareness, the impartiality? Where we're just feeling, we're just feeling whatever it is, or at other times, are we caught? You know, I want this, I like this, I don't like that. <coughs> This teaching, of course, was expressed <coughs> very succinctly by the third Zen ancestor, <laughs> who said, <laughs> the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. It's a very profound statement. And it's subtle because a common reaction to that idea, the great way is difficult for those who have no preferences. Oh, no preferences. And maybe, maybe a further clarification, maybe more accurately it would be attachment to our preferences. You know, so we're, we're really getting caught in them. But we might hear that and think, boy, that's sort of giving up all the sources of my joy, all the sources of my happiness. <laughs> because and the idea that my happiness comes from the things I like. Well, the <coughs> subtlety here, and this is what we really need to explore in our own experience, not a question of believing it or not, it's really looking and investigating, is to see that the experience of the mind that is not caught by attachment to preferences is actually a happier state. That when we go from ice to water, 
we actually feel more open, more joyful. All the things that we think we're getting through our attachments, through our preferences. <coughs> and so in some way, it's really waking up from the dream of our delusion about things. <coughs> but as we all know, this is not easy. You know, the habit energy of liking the pleasant and avoiding the unpleasant is very strong. So how can we begin to decondition that response so we can rest more easily in the open nature of awareness? One aspect of the teachings, which are found in all the traditions, and I think is particularly helpful for us in our culture and society, is the importance of de developing some strength of concentration. Because when the mind is not concentrated, I mean the opposite of concentration is distraction. Right, where we're simply getting lost and tossed about by every arising experience, it's very difficult to remain in that place of wakefulness if the mind is very distracted. So we need concentration as a kind of strength of mind. And we can develop it. This is not beyond our capacity. When I first went to India after the Peace Corps and began my intensive practice, I would just sit and think the whole hour. And actually I'd get up and it felt great. Oh, that hour went fast. <laughs> you know, because I was totally lost in my thoughts. <laughs> so I know from direct experience that if I was able to develop a certain level of concentration, anybody can. <laughs> because I was not one of these people, you know, one of these naturals who just kind of sits down, oh yeah, you know, completely one-pointed. It really took practice. But I think what served me well uh, in those early years was that I didn't really have any doubt. You know, and so even though my mind was very unconcentrated, and it took a lot of just practice and sitting and walking and coming back, I, I just kept going, I just kept doing it. And at a certain point, lo and behold, the mind actually begins to settle. So I think it's helpful just to know this about, the about our own capacity, you know, and that it's a skill. It's, it's like learning to do anything, learning to play an instrument or learning to ski or play tennis, whatever. It's a skill that we can learn by practicing it. It's very helpful and it's helpful for the sense of inherent well-being that it brings, just when we're in a more concentrated, less distracted space. And it's helpful in terms of sustaining the recognition of the nature of mind, because we're not pulled out from it so often. Just a, a little side note to this. One of the things that was a significant help in my developing some concentration was doing periods of the metta practice, you know, intensively. 
because that is a concentrative <coughs> practice. It really made a huge difference. When I did that for some time, it changed the whole quality of the Vipassana. And so, you know, when you have the opportunity, there are, you know, meta courses offered throughout the year. It's really worth doing, not only for the development of the metta itself, but for the strengthening of the samadhi. Uh, It's really effective. Another way that we can begin to have the mind be less reactive to pleasant and unpleasant sensation, and this again goes to the heart of understanding relative and absolute levels. Often when we're sitting and we feel a pain or a discomfort, our first take on it will be, oh, my back hurts, or my knee hurts. And so we build a concept of knee or back, which we then identify, my knee and my back. And so we're just tightening. I'm going to mix some metaphors here. I was, I was going to say tightening the ice, but hardening you know, <laughs> the ice, or whatever it is. In that, in that build-up of the concept, it's really helpful in our practice as we're sitting and just feeling different sensations <coughs> to see the difference between our image of what's happening and what we're directly experiencing. Because we do not experience the knee, and we don't experience the back. There's no sensation called back. And so to say, I'm feeling my back, it's not what we're feeling. That's the, that's the idea we have. What we're feeling is hardness, is tightness, is pressure, is all the, the many sensations. The reason this is so important, this distinction, is that the concept is fixed. You know, we create this idea of back or leg or head or whatever. And the concept is fixed and unchanging. The sensations are always changing. When we're just on the level of sensation, we see its energetic, vibrant uh, characteristic. We can do this, so go from this level of concept to direct experience at all of the sense doors. And just now, as you're sitting, listening to sound, what do you hear? You ask a normal person, (laughs) what do you hear? I hear the birds. But we don't hear birds. We hear a sound and think bird. One is a thought, one is the actual experience of hearing. Is this clear? Because this distinction between concept and experience is crucial to the opening up of that space of awareness that's not reactive. It's so interesting, especially on on intensive courses, you know, where people get very sensitive. And especially at IMS, you know, in in the wintertime, in the meditation hall, you can hear the clinging and pinging of the radiators. Usually for people that's no problem, you know, just sound. But if somebody is breathing loudly next to them, it drives them crazy. (laughs) Well, 
really what's going on. The reaction, they're both just sound. This is kind of like the, the loud breathing is sort of like the deli girls. <laughs> you know, we create a concept and then get all worked up about why can't that person breathe more quietly. And, you know, we get all aversive and reactive and the wars start. Where with the ping of the radiator, it's fine, it's not a problem. When we can drop down from the level of concept just to experience, we find it's a lot easier to be in that place of openness. The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. As we're feeling these sensations, free of concept, we really begin to see very directly the impermanence, the changing nature of them. Pain is not some solid thing. It's not a solid, unchanging mass. What we call pain is really a whole, or an area of energetic intensity, of one kind, it's burning, or it's you know, stabbing, whatever the sensations are, but it's constantly moving, changing in flux, even if it's all unpleasant but it's not solid. As we open to the impermanence and just get into the flow, the changing flow of those sensations, it becomes much easier to relax. And so instead of fighting and making it the enemy, we open to it. <coughs> I'd like to read just one very clear teaching from the Buddha about this, because the understanding of the changing nature of these sensations actually leads to freedom, it leads to enlightenment. So even though we, we're talking about a very ordinary experience, it leads to the deepest release. This is what the Buddha said. He said, whatever feelings arise, whether pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, abide contemplating impermanence in those feelings. So contemplating here doesn't mean thinking about their being impermanent, but actually the direct experience of them changing. Contemplate the fading away, the ending of those feelings. Contemplate relinquishment, letting go. Contemplating thus, we do not cling to anything in the world. And this, this next line is really <coughs> helpful. When we do not cling, there is no agitation. When not agitated, we personally attain Nibbana. <coughs> when we don't cling, there is no agitation of mind. We don't cling when we see the impermanence of things. And so this is a very direct avenue into the experience of that open, empty, innate wakefulness, the nature of mind, becoming water rather than ice. So we want to work with the physical sensations as they appear. And as we get older, <laughs> they may appear more intensely. <laughs> Not necessarily, but 
Okay. It's not only working with physical sensations. We get caught, we contract, we freeze the water also in our relationship to thoughts and emotions. And these are more subtle. The thoughts are very uh, slippery. We're sitting, you know, and just being open, being aware of the body, being aware of sensations, and thoughts slip in so easily and so often unnoticed. And it's quite amazing, this phenomenon of thought. Because when they're unnoticed, when they come and we're not aware that we're thinking, we become lost in them, identified with them, and it's as if we're inhabiting these mind worlds. It's just like we enter into that world of our own mental creation, our own mind creation, and we live out that particular world for however long we're lost in that thought. And this happens again and again and again. We're, we're living most of our lives in the movies of our minds. But what's so fascinating is to s- notice and experience that when we're aware that we're thinking, we see that the thoughts have no substance at all. There's no there's no solidity. The thoughts themselves are completely empty. They're like little wisps of nothing. Because what happens when you're sitting and you're aware of a thought? You're aware that you're thinking. Mostly the thoughts, as expressed in the Tibetan tradition, they just self-liberate. The thought is there and it's gone. There's, there's nothing much there. And yet when they're unnoticed, they're like these little dictators in the mind. You know, just driving us to do this and that. It can be helpful to notice what kinds of thoughts grab us again and again, because we all have our own particular patterns. You know, for some people, the judging mind is really strong. I remember one time on on retreat, I was sitting in the dining room at IMS, and I was kind of pretending to be mindful, but I was really watching everybody. (laughs) And I just noticed, my mind had a judgment about every single person who walked into the room. They were walking too fast, they were walking too slow, they took too much food, they didn't take enough food, I didn't like what they were wearing. It was ridiculous. But the beauty of being on retreat is that it's an opportunity to see it, you know, to actually see what our mind is doing. And in the seeing of it, it got so ridiculous that I could only smile, you know, at what was going on. And in the moment of smiling at what's going on, we're no longer caught, we're no longer lost, we're no longer reactive to it, either believing it or condemning the fact that we're judging, both of which are not very helpful. So it might be the judging mind, it might be the fantasizing mind. People can spend a lot of time in fantasy. Do you know that there's this old cartoon of somebody sort of sitting in meditation and there's the little bubble in their mind of them fantasizing being on some beach someplace. And then the next frame is the same person on the beach, and they're lying on the beach, 
And they're kind of the little bubble fantasizing because themselves meditating. <laughs> How much of our time do we spend lost in these mind fantasies? A kind of thought that is deadly has caused so much trouble in the world is the cause of so much suffering when we're attached to them, which we are often, is our strong attachment to opinions about things. You know, we have so many views about so many things about which we usually know very little, but it doesn't stop us from having opinions. And people, people go to war over it, you know, and all the sectarianism and spiritual circles is all about attachment to view. <clears throat> Another class of thoughts that would be tremendously freeing to really get insight into I mean, this was, this insight, I would say, was one of the major transformations in my experience and how I lived. And it was really looking carefully at the thoughts of past and future and the experience of what we call past and future. Because if we could monitor sort of our minds through the day and the kinds of thoughts we had, about 90% of our thoughts are either related to past or related to future. And we have this belief somehow in the reality of past and future. Looking into this, when I was in the Peace Corps, I was in Thailand. Uh, I was teaching in Bangkok, and a reading project I took for my time there, and it took almost uh, a full year, was to read uh, Proust's A Remembrance of Things Past, <laughs> which is this huge book. <coughs> Something amazing happened at the end of the book because as you, as you go through it, the last 50 pages are his reflections on the nature of time. And his great insight and actually what, what prompted the whole book, you know, as, as you know the story, you know, he had the smell of uh, this Madeleine brought back all of these memories of the past. But his great insight which then we can look and see for ourselves, was that the past is contained in the moment. The past is in the present. That we're sitting, and you can, you can see this, I mean, we're sitting with our breath, with whatever, certain thoughts come, maybe they're memories, recollections. We put a concept past onto these kinds of thoughts, and then we get lost we get attached to the concept as if past is a real thing 
different than the experience of the thought in the moment. But what is actually going on? Our actual experience is that there's a thought in the moment. And the thought in the moment is very light. The concept of past is very heavy. We do the same thing with future. We're sitting and we have certain thoughts of anticipation, of worry, of planning, whatever our future things are. We create the concept future, forgetting that our experience is simply of a thought right now. Does this seem clear to you? Because it is tremendously liberating to free oneself from attachment to these concepts. It's not that we don't use them. I'm not suggesting that past and future as a concept have their uses, but it's to stay very grounded in the awareness that our experience of them is always just a thought in the moment. And so when I saw that, it felt like just two mountains were removed, you know, that I had been carrying around, burdened by my whole notion of past and future. And then it was just thoughts arising. All of this we can see. This is not, this is not difficult to see or understand. We just really have to be interested you know, and to look at our minds and the nature of our thoughts and the content of our thoughts. What are they and what is our actual experience of them? Remembering that the thought itself is completely you know, transparent, empty. It's, there's nothing much there. The only energy thoughts have is the energy we give them. But we're in the habit of giving them a lot of energy. And so we get lost in those worlds. So just as an exercise you can do, Pay attention, either in the course of the day, in the walking time, or in the next sitting, or whenever, whenever you can really see it. See if you can notice the difference in your experience between those times of being lost in a thought, which happens a lot, but pay attention, if you can, to the moment of awakening from being lost. So you're you're marking that moment. You know, lost, 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 and then something happens and then you realize you've been thinking. Pay attention to the difference in your experience between when you're lost and when you are aware that a thought is there. Because right in that moment, we begin to recognize the nature of awareness, the nature of wakefulness. <coughs> so with physical sensations we want to notice how we contract how we become ice through our attachment to the pleasant to the aversion to the unpleasant with thoughts we want to notice how we contract how we become ice in our identification with them being lost in them Another arena, which is uh, 
takes a lot of interest and investigation to free ourselves in. And that is uh, in our experience of different emotions. Because with sensations in the body and even with thoughts, with practice we can get some sense that they're just coming and going and you know, free ourselves from identification. With emotions, it's often what we most personalize. You know, when there's strong happiness or sadness or anger or fear or jealousy or whatever, these emotions become consuming. It's like they, they fill us. And it's very difficult to see that the emotions themselves are part of the passing show. But the emotions also are empty phenomena. This is not easy to do, and yet that is their nature. So I want to talk a little bit about how we can free ourselves from the bondage or the contraction of being so identified with these strong emotions as they arise. Because when you think of so much of the suffering in the world, you know, places of injustice or violence or war or whatever, what really is going on? It's people acting out mind states of greed, of fear, of hatred. I mean, all the actions that we see are simply symptoms of what's going on in people's minds and in our own minds. You know, maybe we're a little better at not acting them out so much, but they're the same processes going on. So it's very, I think, vital that we understand our relationship to emotions and begin to see the selfless nature of them as well. There are a few steps in freeing ourselves when we feel caught and when we feel hooked. And let me say that with the emotions that have just come and passed through, it's not so much of a problem. What I'm talking about now, mostly, is when we are really caught by them. You know, and we all know what that feeling is, when we're in the grip of something. That really is the experience of ice, of contraction. We're not in that place of openness, of fluidity. So at that time, there are a few steps that can melt the ice, that can unfreeze us. The first step that I found really helpful is to have a clear recognition of what the emotion is, what the mind state is, because there are many states which we confuse with one another. And if we're not seeing it clearly, it's very helpful very difficult, rather, to let go of it. So a few examples of ways we confuse different emotions and the consequences of that confusion. A common one. This is really common. <laughs> and the cause of a lot of difficulty is the confusion between love and attachment. I mean, just in our ordinary lives and relationships, it's very difficult to separate out those two. That often, 
with the people we love the most, there's also a lot of attachment to them. And in some way, if we're not really investigating, we take it to be the same thing. But they're really different. And they have different consequences. Because when there's strong attachment to somebody, There's fear of losing them, you know, there's the potential for jealousy, there's a whole series of consequences. What's the difference energetically between love and attachment? And again, this is not, I'm not, I'm not saying this is theory, because it's really just as a way of looking at our experience in this. Attachment is a grasping, it's, it's like that, it's a reaching out. <coughs> And, okay, I want it. Love is a giving. Uh, That's my experience. When when I'm most loving, it's just, it's like a certain feeling of generosity of the heart. It's not wanting. Wanting and generosity are two, they're two opposing energies. I think it would be very interesting to watch in our closest relationships and again, not with judgment. This is not about self-judgment at all. It's about interest. Just to understand and to watch. You know, in the course of a day, way, the feeling of grief is the non-acceptance of the feeling of loss. That loss is there. Loss is a function of change. Loss is always there, you know, for all of us, on so many levels. And it can be an unpleasant feeling, a painful feeling. Because we often don't like to open, or can't open, at a particular time, to the pain, of loss, so it's as if it rebounds into grief for it, and which is natural. I mean, this we do this. It's not, it's not to create an ideal that we should never feel grief, but it, it's beginning to see: Can I understand this? Can I understand what's happening? And then, through that understanding, perhaps coming back as we're going through the grief in different situations, by understanding it, maybe it helps us to come back, okay, can I open myself to the loss? Can I become accepting of the loss? And it's quite amazing that in that acceptance, what happens to the grief? And so all of this, this is what's so interesting about the practice. It's not theoretical. It's, as I said yesterday, the Buddha said he teaches one thing, suffering and the end of suffering. And so it's always to look with interest and exactitude in our experience, what is going on. Okay, so these are just some examples of a clear recognition of the emotion as opposed to sort of confusing different things.
out of that clear recognition we take the next step which is acceptance it's impossible to free ourselves from being hooked by something if we're not accepting of it once we recognize exactly yes it's this it's fear, it's jealousy, it's pride, it's loss, it's grief, whatever it is can we come to that place of acceptance and as you know from many retreats sort of my favorite, one of my favorite mantras in this regard it's the all-time magic acceptance mantra it's okay it's okay it's okay whatever whatever it is that we're feeling it's okay you know and I I worked with that with fear a lot when I was really a huge amount of fear was coming up it's okay it's okay when I could really become accepting of it rather than noting it with the idea that it should go away I remember I was I was working with him I came to the point of thinking if this fear is here for the rest of my life, it's okay. And in that moment, that's where the it's okay came from. It's okay. In that moment of acceptance, the whole thing washed through. It's not that it didn't, has never come back again, but I was let out of the grip of it. So this is step two of working with strong emotions where we're really caught by them. First is the recognition of what it is, second is acceptance. And the third is, the third step, is the process of non-identification, not personalizing. But these emotions, whatever they are, sadness, happiness, love, jealousy, pride, fear, anger, boredom, irritation, worry, you know, there's a long list. They don't belong to anyone. They are arising out of conditions. The conditions change. They dissipate. It's like watching the clouds form in the sky. You know, the clouds come together out of conditions. It's not that there's some inherent thing which is a cloud, which is there and sort of comes from Colorado moves across. It's conditions. It's just changing conditions of air and wind and moisture. And clouds come together, they dissipate. The emotions are the same way. They arise out of certain conditions. The conditions change, they dissipate. So this recognition that they're not self, they're not I, they're not who I am. Just do a little, uh, <coughs> use this as a demonstration. <coughs> Often, and I'll take anger as an example, you know, because that, that is, is often an emotion that catches us a lot. And this came out of an experience I had where I was, this is years ago, something happened at IMS, I mean, maybe 15 years ago. I just got so angry. I mean, somebody did something I thought it was really harmful to the community. You know, I just, the anger caught me. And I went to sleep. I was kind of stewing in this energy. Four o'clock in the morning, the angry energy was still circulating in my body. It woke me up. 
So at that point, I mean, then I got interested. <laughs> you know, what is going on here? <coughs> How could I be so caught in this? And so I asked that question. This was the process. <coughs> Excuse me. Mostly what happens is there's a situation that arises. That's point A. We have a reaction to the situation. Okay, the, in this case it's anger, but it could be any emotion. Okay, situation happens. We get angry. In our identification with the anger, we start thinking more about the situation. The more we think about the situation, the angrier we get. And we're just in this loop. And this is circle is point A, point B. Right. And often in this loop, what I've noticed is that there are often tendrils of blame, you know, which fix it even more. You know, how could they do that? That's whatever. So this is the pattern. You know, situation, we get angry, we start to think about the situation, we get more angry. Very hard to get out of that loop. But a way to remove oneself from it, to free oneself, is not to keep going back to the situation. But at this point, to ask oneself the question, how am I relating to the anger? So that's like point C. Because when we're asking ourselves, how am I relating to this anger, the situation has become irrelevant. The situation has no bearing whatsoever on how we're relating to this emotion. That's completely within ourselves, our own responsibility. And that's what I did in that situation when I was aw awakened by that intensity. I asked myself, how am I getting hooked? How am I getting hooked in this? And just through whatever particular circumstances that happened at that time, just by asking that question in that moment, it was as if the whole mass of angry energy dissolved. It was, it was amazing having been so lost in it because I wasn't asking when I said how am I getting hooked it was not a disinterested question I mean I was I was very interested I was really looking at my mind how am I getting hooked and in that moment I was freed from my reaction to the situation because I was looking at the relationship in my own mind to this emotion is this, does this seem clear? Kind of. Uh, kind of. <laughs> Let me just say one more thing and then... It's not always that the first time we ask that, how am I getting hooked, even if we're looking carefully, <coughs> I wouldn't expect, or suggest that you should expect that, oh, you know, all of the emotion is going to dissipate. I mean, it happened that particular time for me. Sometimes it's a process, you know, and it takes a little time. The important thing is that we are then taking responsibility for how we're feeling rather than blaming the situation for how we're feeling. And as long as we're blaming the situation, we stay caught, we stay identified. It's strengthening the sense of self. We're in the ice. As soon as we're investigating, okay, what's my relationship to the anger? And Thich Nhat Hanh has a beautiful image for this. And in talking about anger, he says, you want to shine the sun of mindfulness onto the anger. And he uses the image of a flower 
you know, opening in the sunlight. And just as you shine the light of mindfulness onto it, slowly, uh, I, I can't remember the exact, but it's, it's like the flower of the anger opens and, you know, releases. Uh, so in some way, it's really a question of relaxing the heart. You know, instead of being so in the grip of these emotions and feelings, where we're losing the recognition of the nature of mind, the nature of awareness. We've lost the experience of water, you know, and we're tightened in our identification with the different emotions. We learn to relax the heart through a clear recognition of what the emotion is, through acceptance, through that non-identification. That's probably enough. <laughs> uh, did you did you want to ask? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have any questions, um, things you'd like to talk about before we do the walking? When you were talking about these steps, I seem to have a question. How are you incorporating an awareness, a body awareness of these sensations? Sometimes, my, the fir- one of the first things I do yeah. to clarify is where is yeah. it in yeah. my body? Yeah. No, I think that's it's really helpful. Because emotion is really, as you know, it's a word for a complex of experiences. So in that are the bodily sensations, are different thoughts, are the mind, the coloration of the mind. Yeah. So I, I think that's really helpful. And, and the challenge is that after you have worked at 4 o'clock in the morning and then you go back at 9 and there are some aspects of the situation which are identical, that uh, uh, the same person is not acting in the interest of the community right, or right, coming out of right, anger right, or whatever right. that is, and then... Uh, yeah, no, that, that, that's a good point. I'm glad you brought that up because the next step in that and what follows is that I found this to be the case. Much easier to communicate then when I wasn't simply venting my anger. You know, when I had freed myself from the anger that I was feeling, then I went back to this guy. You know, and we had a whole conversation and it actually worked out fine. And I saw the much greater ease of communication when we're not coming from this very angry energy because I mean, how do we feel if somebody's coming at us with a lot of anger? I don't know. There's a, there's a natural tendency to protect ourselves. You know, it's kind of violent energy coming. So we set up a barrier, defensiveness, which makes communication difficult. You know, and so freeing ourselves first and then dealing with the situation, uh, I think is actually more effective. We spent last Sunday, we... Uh, <coughs> in a day with Robert Thurman and one thing that he said that was on this point that was very good was um, when you non-attach from the anger when you disidentify from the anger as a personal thing it doesn't mean you don't deal with the situation he says you can go back to the person and 
happily tell them to go to hell. Just in terms of, again, the steps and, and the sea, kind of when it's, you know, how am I relating to anger? Um, I'm kind of wondering, maybe, is there like a D after that? Because thinking of a C, how am I relating to anger, almost think, to me sounds like that's the process of identifying with the emotion and identifying with the self. And is it through that that, that you realize there is no self and there is a non-identification? And so is there one more step? I think that you you could um, express it that way, which would be helpful. Another way of understanding is, and this is probably a good uh, caveat anyway for this whole weekend, would be that sometimes we use the word I in self conventionally. So just for the purpose of a shorthand communication, but it's important to have, so that, for example, when we say, how am I relating to the anger, we don't really mean an I. It's really, you could say, how is the anger being related to? You know, what, what's, the, what's the reaction to the anger? Um, so sometimes, which could be step D or just reframing the language. Yeah, yeah. I have found, you know, over all these years of practice, that some of the most illuminating insights have come not on intensive retreat, but on really taking, well, four in the morning, morning. just out of the interactions that, you know, we all get involved in, where we get caught. That's the place. If we have enough presence of mind to investigate what's going on here, how, how am I getting caught? How is the contraction happening? It's tremendously illuminating. That's, it's the Dharma right there. The Four Noble Truths are right there. There's suffering. What's the cause of the suffering? How is the release possible? Yeah. So it's just to emphasize that Dharma practice is not limited to what we experience even in sitting or on intensive retreat as much as you know as valuable as that is but it's not to make this uh, separation it's our lives I think there's another part to do with intensity of emotions that when you experience anger or experience the, the cessation of love or whatever, it's, it taps into what would be the mountain of anger or the mountain of, of being abandoned or being of loss, which is a, includes the sum total of our experiences. And yet the intensity with which it's felt at the moment makes you want to strike back or contract or with, with more intensity than the situation requires. So it's finding that place where you can say, um, I need to feel this, the intensity of this anger to recognize right, it as yeah. such, and then say, but this person didn't cause that harm. Right, right. You know, caused and then find the appropriate way to <coughs> express the feelings and then mm-hmm. move on. Mm-hmm. 
but we get caught too in wanting to make it all go away or wanting wanting to get retribution. Um, yeah, and then uh, we do more harm. Yeah, no, that, that's absolutely critical. What you're saying, and it's really the practice. Is it's not pretending the anger isn't there. Mm-hmm. It's actually opening to the feeling of it. from a wisdom place, rather from, from the place of water rather than the place of ice. You know, so but then it also as you open to the feeling that it does open the compassion which, huh? which gives, usually suggests another mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. And There's just one point which I'll just throw out <coughs> as a possibility. But in what you said, That, it's, that often what we feel is not just caused by the other person, but caused by, you know, our whole history. Just as a point of investigation, I wonder if it's... I wonder if cause... It's like when I thought caused by the other person, it's just kind of a little red flag went up, of whether on some level it's not that it's caused by the other person, that, that the situation may be part of the conditions in which it arises. <laughs> I had in one, one relationship I had this years ago, and the person is still a very dear friend, but <laughs> one of her favorite lines to me was, stop making me feel aversion. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. <laughs> it's just, it's just not to, uh, the reason is this is a little tricky. It's not to say that conditions are not contributing factors in the arising of what we feel, but it's also just to keep some place of understanding that from a different level of understanding, we might be in the same situation and have not caused that feeling. Mm-hmm. You know? And so in that sense, I think we just take the blaming aspect out of it, but are still staying open to the whole situation. Yeah, I didn't mean to catch blame too. No, no, I didn't. Because uh, I, uh, I think that's what we're trying yeah, to learn. Yeah. It's not about yeah. Except that we are all conditions yeah, yeah. by our past. Yeah, yeah. Even that, and, and it's really interesting, I mean, it's quite interesting on, on retreat, that sometimes people come, as James was saying yesterday with some of the calls that he gets, I mean, people come with amazing histories, and it's just amazing. But so, I mean, huge, huge. You know, violence in their lives, and they're intense. And it's a very interesting process in the context of meditation, right? Because all of this stuff comes up, you know, at, at a certain point. It's, it's very, very vivid, very intense. And to learn first how to mo- how to modulate how fast it comes up, because sometimes it's overwhelming, and uh, so you need to retreat a little bit from it. But once one learns to modulate it, then 
this whole process of really allowing, as you were saying, allowing oneself to feel it, to open to it. What's the relationship to it? That's what, <coughs> that's what mindfulness is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Being aware of the inner yeah, yeah. and of its intensity. Yeah, yeah. No, that mindfulness is the key. Yeah. Absolutely the key. You know, in some ways, sometimes the, this path is called a path of purification. And it's just an interesting counterpoint. There are the two sides. One is the mind is inherently pure. Right? The mind is naturally radiant and pure. From one side. <coughs> and on the other side, it's a path of purification. Well, the path of purification is <coughs> the releasing of the contractions that obscure the inherent purity. You know, so again, these two are not contradictory. They're just coming at it from two sides. I think I had a, a question at the point where you talked about asking, you know, mm-hmm. being awakened by this and asking about it. And um, because of the um, makeup of the uh, emotional system, sometimes there can be that uh, situation that puts one in that spin. Uh, and maybe because of conditioning or history in the same situation, um, it happens very quickly. Mm-hmm. And the intensity, because it's not the person that just the stranger that cuts right. you off on the road, but it's right. the same old thing. You know. And you think that you finally have learned that driving with your eyes closed causes an accident, so you're never going to do that again, mm-hmm. but there you are again. And you can isolate it. And you can understand that it is anger. And you can be without blame. And you can, all of that. And you can say, it's okay. But it creeps, it seeps out. The poison seeps out into other areas so that uh, you've quieted that voice and it's not anger. But then it's concern about the parking ticket you didn't pay. You know, it's, it uh, colors... <laughs> Everything gets colored, and it happens so quickly that it seems like you know it's too late to put your finger in the dike. Um, there's a there's a remedy. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> where where were you before this morning? <laughs> and it's this was a teaching of uh, one of my Zochen teachers, Tilko Oregon who was one of the great, uh, amazing, amazing being. And one of the things he would say very often as a way of practice, he'd say, short moments, many times. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's a different attitude than trying to sustain the place of freedom, mm-hmm. which usually doesn't work in situations like that because the patterns are so different, just as you described. But if you practice short moments, and the short moment means in the midst of all that, it's like a short moment of dropping back, you could say, into the nature of awareness, or short moment of the mind free of clinging, just for a moment. And then you're caught up again, and then you do short moments many times, and it's like you poke enough holes in the in the pattern 
until the pattern falls apart. Uh, yeah. And as has been said by probably every great teacher, uh, and neither the Buddha at some some point said, uh, "Patience leads to nibbana." <laughs> you know, the, we're talking about the deepest conditionings of the mind, and so we need to be patient in the process. Uh, but I. I feel it's really workable. Just, again, this is, this is from many years ago. Something happened with a friend uh, where it felt like there was this huge betrayal of trust. You know, and it was the, really the first time I had ever experienced feeling of betray- being betrayed. It's a horrible feeling. <laughs> it's, it's absolutely one of the worst I've ever felt. And so I was kind of working with this you know, and really getting quite caught in the feeling and in my reactivity and plotting revenge and <laughs> all kinds of things. But in the practice, when I'm suffering, I think I'm wired to take interest, because I want to understand what's causing this suffering. Now, how is this happening? How do I find myself in this situation? So I just kept looking. You know, it's just from so many different sides. Okay, why is it so painful, and how is it so painful, and how am I getting hurt? Because it felt like, it just felt like a knife in my heart. And at a certain point, and it, it was a process. You know, it took it took a certain amount of time. But I realized that really for the knife to hurt, it needed some place to land. And if there was no place to land, it was no problem. You know, that that person did whatever they did for whatever reasons they did it. And But the pain that I was feeling, and this goes back to the question of blaming or not, even in a situation which was rife for blame, because they really did something bad. But that was not the cause of the pain. The the real pain was that I was solidifying a place. So so all of this, I think, is part of the process of really investigating and freeing. Uh, And it's incredibly interesting. And then part of letting go of the blame of the person is also letting go of the blame, of the worthiness of yourself. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, once you can see it as that, you get the benefit too. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, it, a huge source of suffering because for people. Because the trail is that you felt it, you were somehow unworthy. Um... I wasn't casting it in that light, uh, but it could be. I mean, I, I was, I was. Mm-hmm. Okay. There was, a, there was another frame for me at that time. But unworthiness is a major cause of suffering for people. The Dalai Lama had a wonderful response to a question on unworthiness. 
you know, as somebody asked him about this feeling. <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard him be so um, forceful in his response to a question. He said, he said to this person, you're wrong. You're absolutely wrong. <laughs> and it just pointed... It was so kind of startling. And it pointed to the understanding of what we were talking about yesterday, about the inherent nature of the mind. The mind is inherently radiant and pure. So the fundamental nature is not unworthy. Unworthiness is like a cloud that's passing through. And so to take that to be self, to be who, how one fundamentally is, is wrong. <laughs> it's wrong view. And so the Dalai Lama just... Uh, but it's a process for people to work with that because sometimes the feeling is very strongly conditioned. Um, just uh, following up on, on Cal's question, <coughs> you would think you know better after years of looking at it and still you're caught. <coughs> uh, First, with a strong emotion, sometimes, often, there's just a residue, an energetic residue in your body that doesn't go away by investigation or being mindful. That I, I used, to, I would sometimes think, of why is it still here? You know, and and I'm thinking that mindfulness you know, should dispel that contraction. And when I would give myself the the space to see, oh, that. That's the, the, the biochemical or physical aspect of the process. You know, then I gave myself a bit more slack. You know, sometimes just doing something to, to change the energy is, you know, just on a real practical level. But the other thing that that, uh, that crossed my mind is also uh, sometimes I get frustrated. I I would think in my earlier days that mindfulness is is the trump card or the key to everything, and that that that's the answer. And and ultimately, it is. You know, like you, as you say, you have a, an inclination to investigate, and you've been practicing it for all these years, and your mind just kind of naturally goes to that. After a while, it triggers off a place. Like, what is happening here anyway? And and not. You know, not many people have that level of practice where that that gets triggered into clarity so so easily. And seeing in later years that the Buddha had a number of other methods when the mindfulness is not strong, is not strong enough, just on a practical level, he said sometimes it's not strong enough. So you know, there are these you know five different methods for dealing with troublesome thoughts. Well, there's this, or there's that, or there's that, or there's that. And it, it kind of takes the, mm-hmm. it takes the, um, the, the self, uh, the, the discouragement from feeling, oh God, my mindfulness isn't working, that you just have to kind of see where you're at and use other appropriate tools right. as well. And, and, you know, be patient with the mindfulness right. to stronger. Milk and cookies. Yeah, I've tried that. I've tried that. In a way it is, because he says pay attention to something else. Right, right. 
There's actually one, uh, just in line with that, that there's this one story of, uh, from the Buddhist time of a monk who wanted to go to this one particular place to meditate. You know, and the Buddha could see through his kind of psychic vision that it was just energetically, it was not a good place for this monk to practice. He was going to be overwhelmed with hindrances and difficulties. But it was a really beautiful place, and the guy was very insistent. You know, so he said, okay, just go. And so he went, and sure enough, he was overcome by you know all those hindrances. Uh, and the Buddha, just in that line, he was saying, don't go there, go there. You know, and that will be a more conducive environment for you. And so, whether it's a physical environment or any other kind of more conducive environment, yeah, I think that's really helpful to keep in mind. But I, I guess I do have a bias towards <laughs> investigation. Uh, maybe even investigation is not that, that is perhaps not even the right word. I think for me what has uh, fueled and sustained my practice over all these years is the quality of interest. It's real interest in what's happening. Mm -hmm. Then the form that it takes in terms of responding to whatever it is, as James pointed out, there could be many, many different responses. And I think we just need to be reminded to be interested, rather than simply to, you know, be carried along just on the momentum of our habit patterns. And out of that interest, it's like the whole Dharma opens up. Even curiosity, I think, is a good word. Mm-hmm. But at some point, mm-hmm. interest and curiosity uh, also seem like maybe they have to wait, because it oh. seems to uh, what. Um, seems like what really needs to happen is a place of peace with it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes mm-hmm. there's mm-hmm. too much emotion right, right. and that just causes more right, right. activity around right, it. Right, right. Well e- even that, I mean that when I say interest it would be that recognition yes this is too intense now I need to I need to come to some kind of place of peace. To that, stand back yeah, from it. Yeah, yeah. To let it cool yeah, down. Yeah, yeah. That, that to me is included in the interest, interest in the whole situation. Okay, it's like this, I need to balance. Rather than simply spinning out in it, you know, or being lost in but it. Of course, and that's when those yeah. other things come up because you're yeah. not dealing with it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> James and I had this discussion last night uh, from different sides <laughs> about one image that uh, you find in the Buddhist teaching. Uh, so you may also find yourself coming down on, <laughs> on different sides of response to this image. Uh, but where the Buddha said, he likened to this uh, coming to a, a full understanding of the mind, you know, getting enlightened, one could say. He said, it's more difficult than fighting a thou- overcoming a thousand warriors on the battlefield a thousand different times. 
Yeah. And so James was saying sometimes, you know, he or others hear that and it just seems too discouraging. <laughs> you know, oh my God, <laughs> you know, how can I ever do that? But I, I was kind of seeing it as just the acknowledgement of how difficult it is. Yeah, it's not an easy undertaking, and I think it's especially important given our culture, you know, where everything is instant. And Dharma practice is not that. You know, we're dealing with the deepest patterns, you know, at least in the Buddhist worldview, going back countless lifetimes. So it's not a question of a weekend enlightenment intensive. You know, or, I mean, it's just not how it happens. It's, it's a very profound and deep and rich exploration. So, why don't we take about half an hour for some walking, and then we just go into lunch. Um, and again, I'd suggest uh, keeping the silence to lunch. Um, and then we'll meet again at... Uh, Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.